I love me some David Crowder. That's who wrote that last song, by the way. Yeah, he, um, Michael said he chose that one for the dudes because the active range was down nice and low for us, right? <laughs> Grateful for that. Um, normally, I would tell you where to turn in your scriptures this morning. I, I, I will still do that, but it's going to be hard for you to keep up with all the different passages that are going on the screen. If you have uh, maybe a hard copy of the Bible or electronic copy, you want to go to Genesis and you'll be primarily around chapter 6. There's hard copies of the Bible, by the way, in front of you, in the seats in front of you, in the racks there that might help you. If you need a Bible, the, you can take one with you. If you need a Bible, they're free. Go ahead and take one and you'll have one to read yourself. Um, we come into a series of hard questions this summer, and if you haven't been with us over the last number of weeks, not long after Easter, we started the series, Hard Questions. And individuals have been sending in questions to me for, well, years, but over the last year, a variety of questions came in. And let me just give you a highlight of some of the ones we've addressed since Easter time. Um, why should I be baptized? Why should I believe the Bible? Why did Jesus suffer so severely? What happens at death? If I'm already saved, why do I still have to confess my sins? And last week, can a believer lose their salvation? Uh, moving forward, here's some of the ones that are coming up. What should my response be when I observe helpless or needy citizens? Is Jesus still fully man? Is God angry? And they're follow-up on that was, why does it seem like the God of the Bible is always so angry? Um, here's the next one. If God is good, how do I understand human suffering? So obviously, you can tell there's easy ones coming up, right? Yeah, okay. So this morning is a hard question, and it is simply in this form, what about dinosaurs? And this one comes to me quite often, more often than you think. And I've engaged with people, church people, who've said, really? People ask about that a lot? And more often than you might imagine, I want to expand on why this particular question lands on this day. Well, for one, it's Father's Day, right? And so Father's Day is the lowest attended Sunday of every year of church <laughs> services. And dudes love dinosaurs, so there you go. Okay, so here's the next component, though. Um, I have individuals who approach me over the years to ask questions about where science stands in relation to where the Bible stands and the harmony or what they perceive to be the lack of harmony on the issue of things like dinosaurs and fossils and woolly mammoths and all manner of creatures that seem to have existed in the ancient past that they feel the Bible doesn't speak to. So the question comes up, what about dinosaurs? And one person asked me that before we moved into this new building. Um, so a couple of years ago, we were in the old building, and an individual approached me and said, so Mark, where do you land on the issue of dinosaurs? And I, I told him, and he said, yeah, that's not going to work for us. And I said, okay, help me with that, because they'd been at New Hope for about six months. And he said, um, well, let me pose it this way. Do you think Noah and the ark is real? And I said, well, it's in God's Word. Yes, I do. And he said, Daniel in the lion's den? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I kind of see those things as myth. And they were put in there, you know, as folklore, handed down over the years. And he said, if, if you're going to teach on those things as though they're real, um, we can't stay. 
And so this was my follow-up to him. This might help you if you have someone in your life who engages with you in those conversations. I really don't like it when people divide over those issues. I think there's a lot of room for intellectual conversation on those things. But this was my response back to him. And you always want to speak the truth in love. So my response was this. So would you say that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? His response was yes. I said, your wife, I know her. Her response would be the same. He said, yeah. We both believe that Jesus died for our sins. And I said, so here's my point. You believe that God can become man, die for you, take away all of your sins, be resurrected from the dead, come again in glory and power and judge the entire planet, yet you don't believe that God can direct Noah to build an ark. He said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. There will be individuals in your life that will have a very hard line on these issues. There's others, and I'm I'm not trying to convince you this morning, I'm trying to present to you a biblical view on the issue of dinosaurs. Where does God land on the issue? That's what you want to know. What's the biblical response to this? So that's what we're going to explore this morning. Before I do that, I'm just going to ask you if you would pray with me as we open up God's Word on this issue. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you asking that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide, and that that would happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you leave us in this place where we're willing to investigate and explore and see what you have to say. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. John, one of the apostles, concludes the book of John with an amazing statement. I don't mean at the end of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or even the book of Revelation. I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, John one of the Gospels. He concludes John 21, verse 25, with this thought. I suppose if all the things that Jesus had done were written down, all the books in all the world could not contain them. Let me put the actual passage for you up on the screen. John 21, 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, that particular verse frustrates a lot of people because obviously there's things that God has chosen not to reveal. God clearly does not choose to tell us everything, and He leaves room for mystery. But there are things that He does choose to reveal. And there's other things He did not yet want us to know. But here's a fourth component. The information is there, and He wants us to use our brains to investigate and to explore and discover, and we can do that through reasonable, rational exploration. So when it comes to issues like this, I often think of radio waves. And you might wonder why, and you might be thinking that's coming out of left field, but here's my thought. Uh, According to creation, when the sixth day of creation was done, God said that it was very good. Now, that's different than the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth day. If you go back and read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you'll see that God said, first day, it was evening, and it's morning, and it was good. Second day, it's good, and it's evening, and it's morning, and it was the second day. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, all the same, it's good. Comes to the sixth day and says, it's very good. Not that the sixth day was any better than the previous five days, but rather the sixth day was the culmination, if you will, the capstone. It was the completion that everything that God wanted in place was in place, and it's finished. 
So back to radio waves. The sixth day creation is finished and part of God's creation is the existence of things that cannot be seen with the human eye, such as gravity. The North and South Poles magnetically, we know they're there, but we can't see them. The hydrological cycles, wind on this planet, things that God created that we can't see, or even the really fascinated microscopic biological order of this planet that makes us all up with cells and, and go down subatomic and you go into DNA and you find that there's a created order that we will not be able to really understand. Yet science does its best. Another portion of God's created order is radio frequencies. And I use the term frequencies deliberately. In the first service, there was a professor of radio frequencies here. Imagine the odds, right? And I didn't know. I'm glad she told me after the service. Uh, she said, this is something I teach on. I did my dissertation on. So she said, I'm really glad that you differentiated between radio waves and radio frequencies because there is a difference. Didn't know that. Thank you, God. She said, actually, you were quite accurate in what you stated. So, okay, I stumbled into that one. I admitted it to her. And I said, I, I just used the term radio frequencies because this is what I know about frequencies. Radio frequencies travel through the air. Radio waves is the harnessing of those frequencies. Here's the remarkable thing about radio frequencies. Not only are they completely unseen by humans, but they have been there since the sixth day of creation. They've been there all this time, and it's only in the last 150, 170 years that we not only discovered them, but we adapted to how we might use them and then began to harness them. And it's one of those things that God held in reserve for not yet, not yet, not yet. Okay, now. So we come to this subject with the thought of radio frequencies. It makes my mind go there. What do we not know? Well, here's what I do know because the Bible is really emphatic. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke. See this on the screen. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That's Old Testament. Here's the New Testament. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And by the way, that's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, very specifically. Part of what he spoke is available to mankind. Part of what he spoke into existence is there as a tool that you and I currently used, if you have a cell phone, you're using it every single day. You're using radio waves, you're using radio frequencies, yet it was completely unknown and undiscovered for thousands upon thousands of years. Radio waves. My mind goes there. Is it reasonable to assume that there are things that he has chosen not to tell us about yet, or he has available but we have not yet discovered? That's the world of science. Science is the discovery process. So I stand before you of this mindset that good science and the Bible are not at odds with each other. 
Rather, the world of scientific discovery and revelation is one of God's gifts to help us better understand the created world. And into that potential for harmony comes the hard question of God's revealed truth regarding the ancient world. What has He chosen to tell us and what has He not told us yet? What you and I today call dinosaurs, what we were taught in grade school, is rather in reality a species of animals and reptiles that have gone extinct. Just follow my reasoning on this. If a saber-toothed tiger or a woolly mammoth or a mastodon still walked the earth today, we would not relegate them to the world of ancient creatures. We would think of them as part of the normal animal life of our planet in the same way that we think of a Bengal tiger, or we think of an elephant, an African elephant. Let a few thousand years go by and find those bones and somebody would say, dinosaur, it's extinct. Well, things get labeled as extinct animal species or in the case of reptiles, dinosaurs, because they're not part of our world. And because that is true, a conclusion has been drawn to suggest that these ancient creatures were actually predating man and could not have coexisted with man. And I'm here to ask this question, but is that a biblical perspective? Or does God say something different in the Bible? What about dinosaurs? That's why the question comes up. We know where many people in the world of media and specifically also in the world of academia, where they land, they assume that dinosaurs are a problem for people who believe in the Bible. And that's exactly why they were baffled a few years ago when a museum decided to put on display an Allosaurus, specifically not just any museum, but a creation museum. And this Allosaurus was actually discovered in Colorado. And it was on a man's property, a very wealthy landowner who owns a very large ranch who happens to have a creation mindset. When they discovered it, he donated it to this museum, this creation museum. And he specifically put it front and center. And so the, the world publicized through media a headline. And I just want to read you the headline. It's not going to come on the screen. Just hear this. World-class dinosaur fossil takes center stage at creation museum. Now, an Allosaurus, in your mind, just think of a Tyrannosaurus rex. He looks a lot like a T-Rex. He's just a little smaller. T-Rex reaches 38 to 40 feet. Allosaurus in the range of 27, 28, maybe 30 feet. But it's still a meat eater. And it's still absolutely ferocious. And evolutionists would have a view which would say, well, why would a creation museum put that on display? And so we find a quote like the one you're going to see on the screen. This comes from Rachel Maddow at MSNBC. If you are a creationist, if you believe that God created the world in six days, the Bible is literal history, then fossils are an awkward thing for you. After all, fossils are the physical record of living things that died millions of years ago. And her comments are very typical of individuals who would have that particular mindset, that it's an awkward thing for people who believe in God's Word. Because our culture is saturated with this presupposition that dinosaurs prove that the earth is millions of years old because science understands that mankind has been around for less than 10 or 12,000 years, and the Bible and science happen to agree on that point. Therefore, the view is the Bible can't be accurate. Ergo, the Bible is myth, and it's not trustworthy. I'm going to give you a counterpoint. 
While the Bible doesn't always speak with specificity towards the things of science, where it does speak in regards to science, you can believe that it's 100% trustworthy and 100% accurate. And here's my caveat. As with radio waves, as with DNA, as with molecule structure, it's actually mankind that has not yet caught up to the things that God has and has revealed, but rather has yet to discover all the truth behind those things to which the Bible speaks authoritatively, which leads us to the question, what does the Bible say about reptiles and mammals? And I'm just going to combine them into one phrase. I'll just use the term, if you'll forgive it, dinosaurs. Properly understood, the biblical position is this. Dinosaurs are not an awkward thing, but they're powerful evidence that the Bible is accurate. Let me show you why. Today, science is convinced that there was a massive extinction event, that globally there was something that wiped out life, and they are not wrong. The biblical fossil record and the scientific modern-day fossil record, they're actually a match, and they're both quite clear. Something destroyed life in a cataclysmic event on this planet. Science labels it the great dying a global annihilation of all forms of life on this planet. There was some kind of a global event that wiped out life as we would know it. And rather than just trusting me on this, I'll go to NASA. You can go to many sites, and you've probably learned about it if you were in college or maybe in high school you learned about the great dying. Let me put this on the screen for you. This comes from NASA Science. Somehow, most of life on Earth perished in a brief moment. Scientists call it the Permian-Triassic extinction or the great dying. No class of life was spared from the devastation. Trees, plants, lizards, proto-mammals, insects, fish, mollusks, and microbes all were nearly wiped out. Roughly 9 in 10 marine species and 7 in 10 land species vanished. Life on our planet almost came to an end. Why do they draw that conclusion? Because as you examine the fossil record, whether you are a creationist or an evolutionist, when you examine the fossil record, you can't deny the evidence that there is death in the fossil record on a massive global scale. And evolutionary theory leads many to believe that it happened at two points in time. Evolutionists would say it occurred 225 million years ago with a meteorite strike, and then it occurred again 65 million years ago with massive volcano explosions over the surface of the earth and therefore blanketing the earth with an ash cloud and wiping out life. So there's an agreement between the Bible and between science that there is a cataclysmic event that happened that wiped out life. It's not a matter of trying to find the evidence. The evidence is everywhere. The issue is the interpretation of the evidence. I stand before you to tell you that the truth is actually found in Genesis, and I make no apology for it. There is no secret whatsoever that the Bible declares that in Genesis 1 and 2, it reveals that God spoke the world into existence, as we just looked at a moment ago. But it also speaks about the great dying. And the truth about the great dying, which science is still trying to understand, is actually found in Genesis 6 through Genesis 9. And it reveals that God brought about a cataclysmic judgment against the violence of the earth, and He destroyed the earth in a catastrophic event in which no human life or animal life was spared, 
except for those who entered the ark of Noah, and it was a true great dying. Let me just set up the flood for you. Look with me at Genesis 6, verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Keep going, verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So the Bible begins describing a global event, especially as you go into chapter 7. And the type of event that's being described here, it looks like it's a shift in the tectonic plates of the planet. There had to have been massive explosions all over the surface of the earth because the Bible describes that God, the Lord, began to break the crust of the planet, the crustal layer of the earth, and that's spoken of in Genesis chapter 7. I will unpack it with you right now. Look with me on the screen at Genesis chapter 7 when the flood first broke forth, and it says this in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's described, just describing this imagery of vast subterranean storehouses of water of the deep being released all at once. At the same time, the trapped explosive gases that are underneath the crust of the earth being released, causing explosions on the surface of the planet, volcanic explosions all over the earth. Now, put yourself in this mindset of what the Bible is describing. It's describing a vapor canopy around the earth. Back up to Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll find that what's described is what most theologians believe to be a water vapor canopy encircling the earth, much thicker than the moisture that's in our air today, to the degree that it would block out the ultraviolet rays of the sun, allowing longer life, people not dying quite as soon. So we've got this vapor canopy over the earth and God unleashing a torrential rain as what is described there as the heavens breaking open and while water is gushing down from above, it's surging upward from below. God literally breaking the surface of the earth, causing explosions of ash clouds and chemicals being released into the sky and this water molecule canopy collapsing around the earth and that's why it says the floodgates of the sky burst open. So we're talking about a massive eruption and the changing of the face of the earth, the crust actually shifting to the degree that today, 70% of the earth's surface is now covered with water and land is not quite as available as it might have been at one time. Geologists affirm this, biblical science and evolutionists agree there's been a shifting in the crust of the earth. Let me just back up for a second. Pre-flood, I'm convinced as I study this, I've looked at a lot of scientists who have written on this, the world prior to the flood of Noah had a moderate climate temperature all the way around the earth. It's why you find mammoths dead instantly in the Arctic Circle. Mammoths who were vegetation eaters, 
in a region where we would never think of vegetation growing to the degree that it could support something as big as an elephant. Yet, mammoths frozen in time who are leaf eaters in an Arctic Circle area that we would never think a mammoth could exist in because there wouldn't be enough vegetation to feed them. But in those days, there wasn't an Arctic Circle the way that we think of it. The Earth's surface after the catastrophe of the flood is very, very different than pre-flood. The Bible actually speaks to mountains lifting up and valleys going down low. I'll show you that in just a moment. Scientists agree that mountains continue to grow today. They continue to increase in height, ever pushing upward. And as they push upward, they bring along sedimentary rock. Did you know that the tops of the mountain chains around the planet have seashells above 18,000 feet at the tops of the Himalayan mountain range above 18,000 feet are literally millions upon millions of seashells. Now, when that was first discovered, people began to theorize, how could this possibly be? And people came up with wild ideas like migratory birds flying across the Himalayas and, and carrying seashells and they're dropping them. Well, they'd have to do it by the millions and they'd have to fly above 18,000 feet and neither one made any sense, so that was quickly dismissed and geologists began to realize the mountains are moving and they're moving up. And what was once low is now higher and it's taking these seashells with them. So we've got mountain chains higher than 30,000 feet today and ocean valleys that are lower than 35,000 feet and scientists are agreeing something is moving. We find because that sediment was once at the bottom of the flood in this great reshaping of the planet, massive burials took place. And they're finding bones at elevations you would never expect to find them. The Himalayas alone have these fossilized sea creatures, and God has reshaped the face of the earth. What was once a lower surface is now on the top of a mountain. And if you will, if you will do this, church, if you will see this through a biblical lens, look with me at Psalm 104. 104 verse 6, and he's writing here about the flood of the planet, and he's writing here about what God released upon the planet. Verse 6, you covered it with deep as with a garment. Now, the deep is always referred to as the ocean. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. So the mountains are beginning to let the water recede because of gravity. It's flowing back out now. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. What did God say? I will not destroy the earth again in that fashion. I will not destroy the earth again with a flood. Mountains are now the barricades, and we have 70% of the earth held with water, but the mountain chains are like a barrier, and water flows out from them. We have that here, even here with the Rocky Mountains. Now, you don't have to just take my word for it. I'm going to let an expert speak here in just a moment. The cataclysm of the flood and the fossil record that is contained within it explains the stratification and explains the extinction of all air-breathing life. But watch what Dr. Henry Morris, a really respected scientist, what he wrote about this. If you want to be looking at a book that's really interesting, go to Dr. Henry Morris and Whitcomb, who wrote on the flood. 
Here's his quote, just two paragraphs for you. The oceans are much more extensive since they now contain all the waters which were once above the firmament in and in the subterranean reservoirs of the deep. The land areas are much less extensive than before the flood, with a much greater portion of the surface of the earth uninhabitable for this reason. The thermal vapor blanket was dissipated so that the strong temperature differentials were inaugurated, leading to a gradual buildup of snow and ice on the polar latitudes, rendering much of the extreme northern and southern land surfaces also essentially uninhabitable. Second paragraph. Mountain ranges uplifted after the flood emphasize the more rugged topography of the post-Diluvian continents with many of these regions also becoming unfit for human habitation. Windstorms, rains, snow were possible now, thus rendering the total environment less congenial to man and animals than it had been before. Last sentence. The environment was also more hostile because of the harmful radiation from space. No longer filtered out by the vapor canopy, a gradual reduction in human longevity after the flood. He's speaking of the record of Scripture, and I'm going to show you the record of Scripture in just a moment. Science is correct. There was a great dying. It did occur. It actually is in agreement with the Bible. The surface of the earth shows evidences of massive volcano explosions, cataclysmic reformations of the earth's crust, a shifting in the tectonic plates. And research clearly indicates there has been an ancient global climate change on our planet. While science continues to look for explanations, the explanation is in the Bible. Not all of life was destroyed. God says that He preserved life so that He might still accomplish His purpose. Genesis 7.21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man animals to, from man animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. So the Bible says that prior to the flood, there was not rain as we know it today. But rather we're told that this canopy of water created a very humid greenhouse environment. There's no rain dropping, but rather there's so much moisture in the ground. Scripture indicates in the book of Genesis, it was like an underground sprinkling system. Moisture that came up from the earth, creating enough dew to water all the plants. That was what was necessary. But beyond that, very interestingly, while the canopy is filtering out the sunlight, things are living longer and longer. Very, very interesting. Did you know that of all of the created order on this planet, reptiles are the only creatures on this planet that continue to grow throughout the course of their life? In other words, a 10-year-old boa constrictor is much smaller than a 20-year-old boa constrictor. And the longer they live, the bigger they get. You and I, we reach our maximum height at adulthood. They are of a creature species, reptiles, that continue to increase over a period of time. 
And what the Bible seems to be indicating is that we have a series of reptiles here that continue to grow for centuries. They don't develop today because they can't live long enough to develop in the way that they did prior to the flood. Now it's post-climate change of the flood, and life is restricted and shortened. So the Bible does actually speak of dinosaurs, though it never actually uses the word dinosaur, mostly for this reason, because what would be a dinosaur to you and I would have been a creature that they're accustomed to living with at that period of time. And so they use a different term, a different phrase. And in the Hebrew language, the Old Testament word that's used is tanaim, and tanaim has three components to it. This particular word is used often to describe in the Bible a sea monster. It's also used to describe a serpent. But more commonly and occurring more often than all of the other two put together is the word dragon. That sounds very fanciful and like Hollywood, but I want to show you something in Scripture for just a moment and get dragon out of your mind. Tanaim appears to have been applied really broadly to a giant reptile, which is mentioned over 30 times in the Old Testament. And your mind could go very, very quickly to crocodile, and you wouldn't be wrong. However, think biblical proportions, crocodile. I'm going to challenge you, don't do it right now, but after the service, use your search engine and look for super croc. And you will be very, very impressed. Now, I'm going to put the image on the screen, but Super Croc was a crocodile bones that were discovered in Africa, by the way, Sahara Desert Africa, not that long ago. And when they uncovered the bones, first uncovered the skull, thinking, what in the world is this thing? As they unearthed it, discovered that it was indeed a crocodile, but a super crocodile, actually 40-foot-long crocodile. Now, I don't want to encounter a 10-foot crocodile let alone super croc. When you Google it, when you search it, when you put it in Fox, wherever you go to do your search engines, go look at super croc, and you will see that with his mouth open, he can swallow a human being whole. That's where the word tanaim comes in, a giant reptile. Now, beyond these giants, the Bible describes other very large creatures which don't exist today. First and foremost of the two I'm going to mention are Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth is mentioned by God when He's speaking to Job and putting Job in His place and saying very specifically things about Behemoth that Job doesn't want to mess with him. And what He says to Job is, Job chapter 40, verse 15, Behemoth that I created, by the way, pay attention to me, God says, not to the creature. But when you look at Behemoth, you think of me and notice, Job, that he has a tail like a cedar tree. And when God's thinking of cedar trees, He's not thinking of the cedar trees that you're thinking of. You're thinking of the little cedar bush that's in your yard. Think of the cedars of Lebanon, which grew to 90 feet tall, which they used the beams from to build the temple in Jerusalem. Those are really, really large trees. And God says, pay attention to Behemoth. He's got a tail like a cedar tree. When I think of that, I think of Brachiosaurus, or I think of Brontosaurus, because God gives descriptors of how He built that creature. But then there's also this, and it's a little bit longer, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me as you watch God speak to Job and hear how God is speaking to Job. Job thought he had God figured out. He made announcements and pronouncements about God's behavior and God's nature. And in the book of Job, God shows up 
and sets him in his place and begins speaking about things that he has done and creation that he has made. And he puts like a crowning glory on it when he speaks of this one that he calls the greatest of all of his creation. In other words, in the animal world, Job 41.1. Let your mind go when you hear this. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Fish hook? Here we go, verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as, a, as with a tight seal. One is so near to the other that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneeze flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostril goes smoke goes forth, and as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, nor the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotted wood. Where does your mind go when you hear that? You seen anything like that roaming your neighborhood? Run if you do. I've never seen anything like that. So there's some creation of God that has not been known by us, and yet we have a fossil record that indicates there were things here before us that actually were here when man was here, and I don't make that statement lightly. Nearly every ancient civilization has some form of art depicting giant reptilian creatures, and I'm talking about ancient civilizations that predate modern man, meaning go back before the age of industrialization. Petroglyphs are found in North America which resemble modern images of dinosaurs. Before we put the image on the screen, let me just clarify what you're about to look at. It's been dismissed by science, evolutionist science. Creation science would say it's real. Evolution science says it can't be because man and dinosaur didn't coexist. Yet they have to do something with this image that was found in Utah at the National Park at Stone Bridges. And we'll put this image up on the screen for you. Uh, just let me know what you think you see when you see that. It looks like Brachiosaurus, looks like Brontosaurus. That would require a human to put a stone carving on the wall. How could a human see that? That's way before the age of archaeology. It dates back to pre-America, to Native Americans. Where did they see that and how did they see that? Now, here's where science dismisses it. When you look at the little box above it, it's the original image that was captured, and it's very faint, and so it was enhanced to identify what the image is. But when you look at the original image, it's a little smudgy. 
And evolution science looks at it and says, that's just a smear of mud on rock. Creation science has gone there and looked as closely as they can. Evolution science has gone there and looked as closely as they can. And it's way up on a rock cliff. It's very hard to get at. It's two hours from the nearest road. You have to hike way back in. You'd have to carry a ladder. No one apparently has done that yet. So they're looking at it through highly magnified binoculars. And they're trying to identify what it is. Now, when I was a child, my grandfather taught me a principle. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. I'm looking at it and thinking, I don't think that's a smear of mud, but we'll set that aside. If modern science wants to dismiss it, okay. They can't dismiss this one, and modern science has not dismissed it. Look at this image from Cambodia. This was found not that long ago, I think in the last 40 years, at a temple complex, and the temple complex dates back to 800 A.D., when you look at that, you think, that's a stegosaurus. You see the spikes on its back. How could someone living in 800 AD have seen a stegosaurus if they died 65 million years ago? So science looks at it and says, you know, um, we think it's a hippopotamus, and, and somebody artistically drew those spikes on its back as kind of a, an enhancement. Okay, it depends on how you interpret what you're looking at. How do you interpret what you're seeing? There's rock carvings in South America that depict men riding Dilopagus. In addition to that, there's human footprints that walk alongside dinosaur footprints in fossil in stone. All of these evidences point to the reality that God said this actually was real and it was part of human creation. At the time when humans were here, it was part of the created order on the sixth day when God said, it's very good, it's done. Let's set all of that aside. Back up to the moment when Noah and Mrs. Noah walk out of the ark. And they've got their three little Noahs, with, well, they're not so little, they're grown men. They've got Hem, Shem, and Japheth, and Hem, Shem, and Japheth have their wives. So there's eight people, eight human beings who walk out of the ark and they walk into a very different world than the one that they had left behind. What is Noah's first response? If you go to chapter 8 and verse 20, you'll find very specifically it says, he built an altar to the Lord. Now, a burnt offering is always in the Old Testament a recognition of devotion to the greater from the lesser. Obviously, it's thanks. Thank you, God. But we're going to build an altar. And we're going to represent to you that we are devoted to you. So we have Mr. Noah and Mrs. Noah and all their offspring saying to God, we see what you've done and we give you everything. We dedicate totally ourselves to you. The Bible says that Noah was a righteous man and he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But if you go forward another chapter, you also find that Noah was a fallen man. We know Noah was not perfect. We know Noah's wife was not perfect. He's not married to a perfect woman. He doesn't have perfect children. He doesn't have perfect daughters-in-laws. The flood did not remove fallenness from this planet. 
And because Noah and his offspring were fallen, they produced sinners. God preserved Noah and his family in order to preserve them for his purposes because of his grace. I think most Bible-believing individuals would say, God has every reason to bring judgment right now. And some people look around saying, wow, God, why don't you bring an end to the earth right now? Because it's like, how much more corrupt can it get? God did not judge the earth again since the flood, but it doesn't mean He won't. Why? Because God is patient. And the Bible says God's patience is meant to lead people to repentance. Sinners today are no better or no worse sinners than what they were in the day of the flood. We're told that the earth was filled with violence and God was going to bring an end to it and do a reboot and work through Noah. But God has every reason to have taken us out long ago, but He says, I'm not going to do it in the same way again. Let me revisit for you now as we close this why and how we sew all this together. Look with me on the screen at Romans 2.4. Paul's speaking to a group of people to remind them about the patience of God the riches of His kindness and the tolerance and patience. And he's asked this question already, do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Because God's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. I stand before you today as one who is convinced after studying all these things, according to God's Word, God will not again destroy the earth with a flood. He's not going to blast us to smithereens with a meteor, and we are not going to all die from global warming. I may get hate mail over that one, but I just want you to hear it straight from God's Word. The earth as you know it will remain inhabitable until Jesus returns, because God has a plan, and He's working His plan. And Peter wrote specifically about this plan because he, God knew that we would live in an age when people would wonder. So look with me at what Peter wrote. 2 Peter 3.3, 3, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment." Paul goes on to say in Acts chapter 17 when he's speaking to a large group of people at a place called Mars Hill that that day has already been set and fixed. God knows that day. Look with me on the screen. Acts 17, God now requires all men everywhere to repent because He has fixed the day. He has fixed the day in which He will judge the earth through righteousness by one man, the man Jesus Christ, whom he furnished proof to the earth by raising him from the dead. That's what Paul said on Mars Hill. And when he said by raising him from the dead, they threw him out of Mars Hill. Don't talk to us about this foolishness, Paul. We don't want to hear that anymore. But the Bible says this, when he comes again and when he restores order, the earth at that time will then go out of existence because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Look with me on the screen, 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
That's the uncreation of the earth. Literally, everything goes out of existence, and I don't think any single person is going to be saying in that moment, what about dinosaurs? I need proof. God said the proof is there. Do you have eyes to see? This elimination of the planet happens once again, and it happens in a much more extravagant way than it happened the last time, and it happens when Jesus returns. Until then, praise God for this church, this is the age of grace. We live under God's amazing grace. And I'm simply asking you the question this morning, what are you doing with this opportunity? What are you doing with this opportunity of grace? The flood came, nobody believed, they all drowned, there was a great dying, the planet was destroyed. Scripture says Jesus will come again, and for those who trust in him, for the forgiveness of your sin, hear this, Jesus is your ark right? He's got you. He is your ark, and that's why Paul wrote, because of Jesus, we escape the wrath to come. How great is our God? I don't know what you do with all this information that you've heard this morning. Perhaps it gives you greater confidence because you already came in here convinced that God did the things that he said. Maybe you came in with questions on your mind. I'm going to pray for all of us right now in the same way that the Holy Spirit would bring God's conviction upon us about the way that he wants us to understand it for this reason, not just for your own self-confidence, but so that you can speak to people who are in your life that have questions. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I lift up to you our church and those who are watching, um, not just from the seats here, but watching online, that as we go out and engage with people and we talk about these things that we read from your word and we find ourselves having to do something with it, that you would use it in our life to speak into the lives of others, that we would not remain silent, but rather we would speak with confidence of the things that we know to be true because you declared it to be true and you cannot lie. So thank you, God, for the record you did give us. Thank you that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that your blessing would rest upon this church now as we go out and take on this week. Use us for the advancement of the kingdom. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, thank you, Lynn. <laughs> um, there was something that came up along with this, and I can give you a very quick answer on it. Don't feel like you have to stay if you don't want to. Um, the question came along with this. So where did Cain's wife come from? I actually got a call from somebody in Detroit last night who couldn't be here today and they wanted the answer in advance. <laughs> I told them that's the strength of video. You can watch it later. So, okay, here's, here's the answer. Um, in the case of Cain's wife, people would look at it and say, and if you're new to church, let me help you with this. Adam and Eve had two sons. Their names are Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. And then the next thing you read is that Cain gets married and Cain has a wife. And people look at it and say, wait, if God finished everything on the sixth day, where did Cain's wife come from? Have you ever thought about that? Okay. So we have two perfect beings, Adam and Eve, created perfectly from the hand of God, meaning no genetic, genetic mutation, no malformation. They're perfect in God's sight. 
Now, unless God created another being, which he chose not to tell us about, which would go beyond the sixth day of creation when it's finished and everything's done, unless he created another woman besides Eve, we have to conclude that Cain's wife is actually his sister. But we're told that Adam and Eve had many, 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 many other children because they lived hundreds of years. So very likely, Cain didn't even know his sister in the sense that they grew up together, but they birthed children, they became married together, yet with no genetic mutation because they're perfect from God's hand. So whether God created another being or Cain married his sister, that's the answer to that question. Now, on the heels of that, have a great week, New Hope. (laughs) 